Hey, tonight I am going to have uh, a friend share, uh, Jeremy Caillou, as uh, we've known each other for a couple of years. We've been to a couple of pastors' conferences together, monthly meetings and stuff. And so uh, he is going to come up and share from the Word this evening. So, Jeremy, I'll just let you come up and give a little brief bio. And then I think he's got a handout. You got, everybody got the handout? You good to go? Is everybody got one? Okay. So let's turn it over to you, Jeremy. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Blessing to come out here. Um, all right. Well, so a little bit about myself, even though I don't want to take much time about that because focus is on Jesus. The focus is on the Lord and, and that's where it should be. So, um, but yes, I was um, an assistant pastor at Calvary Chapel Eagle for the last couple of years. And so just recently the Lord told us that to take a step of faith and to Go where he's going to show us. So that's where we're at as a, as a family. I have six kids, and, um, and so we're just trusting the Lord to bring us right where he wants us to be. So um, enough about me. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I come before you the only way that any of us can, and that's through the grace and through the righteousness of you, King Jesus. There is no other way. And I pray as your word goes out, you promise that it will not return void that it will accomplish all that you want and it will prosper where you send it. And so as your word goes out, Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would apply it to each one of our lives. Lord, you know each one of us. You know where we're at. You know our weaknesses. You know our strengths. You know everything about us, Lord. So correct those things in us that need corrected. Encourage those things that need encouraged, Lord. You know exactly what each one of us needs. So we just turn this time over to you. May your word speak, again, through the power of your Holy Spirit, as you promised it would, Jesus. You said you're humble and gentle, and that you'll teach us. So teach us tonight through the power of your Holy Spirit, all to your glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to see how far we get. Um, I never get done, so um, we'll be lucky to probably get to that last page there, or the back side of the handout. Um, For years, I um, studied the Bible pretty in-depth. Um, I've been in Calvary Chapel for, for a long time, um, and so we study the Bible, but I don't know how well I stepped back and looked at the bigger picture of what, what is God doing from beginning of the Bible to the end. What, what is the bigger picture, right? Sometimes I can get really down into the weeds, and we can argue about theology, even though the Bible says it's a waste of time. Don't argue about spiritual things, right? Focus on, on Jesus and, and winning the lost and um, making disciples, so I asked the kids yesterday and my wife, I said, you know, why is the Bible called the Bible? It's been a long time since I looked it up. Like, how did it get the name Bible? So the first question on your sheet there is, you know, why do we call the Holy Scriptures the Bible? And it comes with an encouragement because in the Latin words, which is where it comes from, biblios means the book or the books, right? And so my encouragement to people all the time, I'll, I, I ask a lot, what are you reading? Right, to see where people are spiritually, see where they're at, get a barometer for you know, where the Lord is in their life. And so my encouragement to you, it, it is the book. It is the only book that can make an eternal difference. Right? The rest of it's all going to burn up. The rest of it's all going to be gone. We can read all these books about all these different topics, but for eternity, they're not going to matter. And so if you're going to read something, I highly encourage that you start there. Right? Instead of reading books about God, why don't you read the book that God, that God gave us? So that we can know him. And so as an acronym, just 
for years and years, right? What does the Bible stand for? Basic instruction before leaving earth. Right? Basic instruction before leaving earth. We don't know a lot of what happened before the earth was here, and we don't know a lot what's going to happen after the earth is here. So the Bible is focused, and God's focused on what happens here on this earth. Right? He's given us the whole plan from beginning to end as far as the earth as we know it now goes, but we don't have a lot before and a lot after. So it brings me back to the high-level part of what is the main message of the Bible? From beginning to end, what is God trying to tell us throughout the entire Bible? And so we get a picture of that in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. Jesus states he was sent for what purpose? And he says that he was sent to preach the kingdom of God. He says, I was sent for this purpose, to preach the kingdom of God. And then... In Matthew 6, Jesus states that we should seek first what? We should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all else, and then he'll add all the rest of it unto us, right? And so the main message of the Bible from the beginning to the end has always been the kingdom of God. That is the message. We are supposed to be focused on the kingdom of God, not on this world. This world is passing away. The kingdom of God is not. It's going to last forever. And so that is the message of the Bible. It's the kingdom of God. And as we go through the Bible, you start to see more and more how that kingdom plays out and how God is working in this earth as we go throughout the Bible. And so you had this man, and it comes up in John chapter 3, named Nicodemus, who was a religious leader. He was a religious teacher. He had studied the Old Testament. He had studied the law of Moses. He had studied all the prophets. He was supposed to be this teacher of God. And what was the main message from the beginning? It's the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus' job as a teacher of, of God and of God's word was to talk about the kingdom of God. So it doesn't shock me as Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he's blown away by the miracles Jesus is able to do. Right? The miracles always testify to the message. It's never the other way around. Right? The message goes out and the miracles testify that this message is really from God. And so Nicodemus says to, to Jesus, I know you are of God. I've seen the proof. I've seen the miracles. Nobody can do what it is you do. So Jesus takes this opportunity to focus on what? On the kingdom of God. And he tells Nicodemus, this great religious teacher who's supposed to know everything about the kingdom of God, he says something about it. Because if the message is the kingdom of God, the question is, who's in the kingdom of God? Are there people that aren't? And how do we get into it? Right? That's the question. And Jesus tells Nicodemus... He says that in order to see or to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again of the spirit. You must be born again of the spirit. Now, Nicodemus was very much focused on the physical. I have a saying with the kids as we, as we go through the Bible that the spiritual will control the physical. The spiritual is more important. It's more powerful. That wherever the spirit goes, the physical is eventually going to follow. And so he says the focus is on the spirit. You must be born again to be in the kingdom of God. So how do you get in the kingdom of God? You have to be born again. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's not coming to church. It's not just reading my Bible. It's not praying. It's not just having fellowship. Those are all good. But the only way in the kingdom is to be born into the kingdom. And so Jesus goes on in John chapter 3, a, little bit, a few verses down, and Jesus states a person must do what to be born again? What must we do to be born again? And he goes on to say that we must believe in the name of Jesus. That if you do not believe in the name of Jesus, that you are going to be condemned. Condemnation comes and judgment comes unto hell for not believing in the name of Jesus. So that tells me something. The name of Jesus must be pretty important. 
What does this name Jesus mean? As I teach the kids each day, we, we go through the Bible. We've been through the Bible with my older kids. We've been through it you know, multiple times. My, my older son, we went through the Bible seven times. So he has no excuse for not knowing God, the things of God. And what the Lord does with him is now up to him and the Lord as he's left home now. Um, my first one, but that, that's left home. But we've been through the Bible. He knows, he knows about Jesus. But as I've been teaching the kids, again, taking a step back, I think as he grew up, we were very much in the weeds, right? And I just took for granted he knew what these things were. But I don't know why, because I didn't. I sat in church for the longest time having no idea about what a lot of these words mean. I just said them. They're just how we talk as Christians. Me and Pastor Dan were talking about this. It's this Christianese stuff that we can get into that becomes clicky that actually turns off those that are outside the church. What are they talking about? They're strange. They got their own language. It's weird. And so what does this name Jesus mean? So it means Lord is salvation or God is salvation. God saves or simply the easiest way to put it is savior. Jesus is savior. So when I see that name Jesus, I should think of savior. And so, but that brings up a question then. If the Lord is salvation, then what does Lord mean? My kids, I ask them this, what what does Lord mean? I want them to practically tell me, right? Like, what is that? How does that practically play out in your life? Because just because you memorize that does absolutely no good, right? You memorize the word, he's the Lord Jesus. My nephew once asked me, because all I do is talk about the Lord, he's like, who is this Lord of yours? I'm like, this is the greatest question you could ever ask me. Sit down, young man, we're going to have a talk, right? Um, So Lord, when it's capital in the Bible, means self-existent or eternal, which means God has no beginning and God has no end. He's self-existent. Nobody created him. He is the creator. Now, when it's little Lord, which is usually when it comes across speaking of Jesus, it means supreme in authority, or some people might say supreme leader, controller, or master. For a long time, I grew up in church. So my, my uncles were church planner. My other uncle was a pastor. And so I grew up in the church, um, and then seeing them walk out and seeing them plant churches and it grow from a few people meeting in somebody's home to a restaurant, then to a building, and then they would just move on. That, that was their heart of planting open Bible churches. And so um, I grew up in this, and I, I got the Savior part. I, I understood that I was a sinner. The Lord part doesn't come until much later. And even today, in my own walk with the Lord, he's not always Lord. i got to think about that supreme in authority, which means, as I tell the kids, you have to check with him before you do things. And I'm learning as I grow in the Lord to check with him on more and more of even the little things in life, even the little things. Um, So, supreme in authority. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus asked the most important question that's ever asked. So what's the question? If it's the most important question ever asked in the world, we should know what it is. And it goes back to believing in the name of Jesus. But which Jesus? Who is this Jesus, right? Well, we saw from before, he's Savior. He's the supreme authority. He's the self-existent one. Um, but Jesus asked this question. He says, who do you say that I am? When I go to share the gospel, um, this is usually the question that I get back to. When I ask people, whether it's my neighbor, someone down the street, a family member, who do you say Jesus is? matter of fact, at church, I ask a lot of people because there's a lot of people in church that don't actually have a personal relationship with Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's the most important question he's ever asked us. And so Peter gives us the right answer. Go down to the next verse. What is Peter's answer to the question? Not that Peter knew. He says, the father gave you this answer, Jesus says. What is the answer? 
And so the answer is that you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are the Christ. Again, I ask my kids, what does Christ mean? Is that Jesus' last name? What What does Christ mean? I read this over and over and over again in the Bible. And what I can start to do is just read it. It has no meaning. It doesn't mean much. We sang in these songs. I was listening, right, and paying attention. I'm like, there's Lord, there's Christ. We sing about this all the time, but what does it mean? And how do I practically apply that? And so Christ meaning anointed one. And who do we anoint? We anoint kings and we anoint priests, right? But to make it simple, I just call it King Jesus. When it says Jesus Christ, he is Jesus the king. He's the victorious king. And that's where we're going to go consistently tonight. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Jesus has to be king. It is about his kingdom. If the message of the Bible is the kingdom of God, then it's got to be all about the king. It's got to be focused on the king. My life should be focused on the king. All right, so what is the Hebrew name for the Greek title Christ? It's, it's Messiah. Again, sat there forever. I had no idea what Messiah meant. Read it in the Old Testament quite often. Read it here in the New Testament. What does it mean? Well, Messiah and, and Christ are the same thing. It's king. It's the victorious king. It's King Jesus. And so... Um, all right. So today we're going to be, we'll see how far we get. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, talking about the church in Thessalonica. And then we'll be in the book of, of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. We'll see how far we, we get again. Um, I'm not worried about how far we get. We're going to get as far as the Lord wants us to. All right. So when I go through the Bible, and I've done this for years, and, and the Lord put it on my heart to say, In every book of the Bible, now we're all the way through them, and and we've got a thing for Jesus in every book of the Bible. I read through that book and myself, and I say, what did I learn about Jesus? In every book of the Bible, what do I learn about Jesus? What stood out about Jesus from Genesis all the way to Revelation? What stood out? This is a large book. It's hard to remember. It's really hard for me to remember where things are. I know a lot of the Bible, but where are they at? I don't know. Right? I have to... Look it up on the software on my phone now, which makes life a lot easier. Right? I don't have to memorize it and feel like I, I'm super smart. I, just, uh, I know that verse is somewhere. Let's, let's look it up. Um, but so in, Thess- in Thessalonians, what was Jesus to me? And as I read through it, it's Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back as the victorious king. Jesus is coming back to get us. It's what gives me hope when I wake up in the morning. I see the world going on. If I turn on the news too much... Um, I really got to remember Jesus is coming back, that Jesus wins, that he's the victorious king. Because I look at this world and I'm, it ain't headed in that direction. We're not going to change the whole world and save the whole world. That's not what the Bible says. You know, some people think that. It's getting worse. It's not getting better. It's getting darker, not lighter. So we shouldn't all be upset when it's like, what is going on? Well, if you read your Bible, you know what's going on. Like the enemy knows his time is short. It's getting shorter and shorter. So I only expect it to get worse and worse. And so... Jesus is coming back, coming back to get us, coming back to win. And then I say, kind of what is the theme, but more for me, how do I practically apply that? Oh, great, great, Jesus is coming back. People look at me and think, you're nuts. My family, a lot of them, (laughs) thinks I'm nuts. What do you mean Jesus is coming back? I don't even believe he came the first time, let alone he's coming back. Right, your hope is in Jesus coming back? Yeah, that's what he says. Says it over and over and over and over and over again. He's coming back. That's what the whole Bible is about, him ruling and reigning as king. And so in 1 Thessalonians, my practical thing for myself as I read through it is live to please God, not people. Jesus is coming back, 
I know that's true, then I need to live to please God and not people. Because all of us, whether we want to admit it or not, are people pleasers. I want people to like me. I want people to say good things about me. Right? We're all worried about it. We worry about what we look like. We you know, look in the mirror. What do we look like? What clothes do we wear? All these things. What do people think? And, but that's not what God says that we should live. Like It doesn't matter what the other people think. Just live for the Lord. It matters what he thinks. I should desire to please him, not my children, not my family, not my neighbor. Right? I should live to please God. If he's coming back, that's what it says I should do. And then approximately what year is it? It's approximately A.D. 50. Right, so if Jesus went, died, rose again, and went back to heaven somewhere around A.D. 30, right? you can look at, up all these dates and everybody disagrees. And it's somewhere in there. My, my kids have their study Bible, so they go, no, Dad, it was, it was 52. Well, the other one says 51. The other one says 58. It's like, right, everybody wants to be right, right? So I just say somewhere around 50. But this is 20 years after Jesus has gone back to heaven. So the Gospels had a good, good chance to go out. All right, who is writing in First Thessalonians, it's the Apostle Paul. I had no idea who this guy was. How did he get here? Why is he writing letters? What's this church thing? Where did it come from? Like, if I hadn't read through my Bible before, I, I, what is going on? I know nothing about Paul. He's not even a follower of Jesus. He wasn't one of the original 12 apostles. Who is this guy, and where did he come from? So the Lord's really spoken through me, through the Apostle Paul. I saw some... some Christian show about him, right? And as I watch these things, yeah, I tend to be bad at watching them because I know my Bible and I'm like, no, that's way off. Whoa, I don't know, right? That possibly maybe could have been. Um, and I usually, you know, talk more and my wife's like, can, can you please be quiet so I can at least see the show? Um, you know, that's, that's your opinion. Um, and so <laughs> Paul, there's this scene in this show and Paul was a religious guy. He was the up-and-coming, you know, super mega pastor of the Jewish religion. And um, he was very zealous for God. He's very much like the Muslims are today, where they're going to go out and they're going to serve God and they're going to do whatever they can to honor God. And anybody that doesn't honor God, he's going to make sure that they know that they're not honoring God. It's the exact opposite heart of God. But here he is in his religious system that he's brought up in under these, you know, this, this famous teacher. And as the church gets started... They first were called Christians. It, it, was, it was called the way back then, the way of Jesus. And um, this apostle Paul's going out, and he's persecuting Christians. But I guess maybe I didn't, um, when you see it played out, it becomes alive. It becomes living a little bit more. And so in the show, again, I don't think this is, I mean, he's, they're, they're taking some license to, to make things be the way they are. But Stephen is the first martyr that we see in the Bible. Paul's there when Stephen is stoned to death. I always, I don't know why I thought Stony was little stones, but in the shows, it's big stones. I'm like, oh, yeah, that would kill you. It's like being hit with bricks, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's terrible. And so Stephen is just like Jesus. He's dying there, and he says, Lord, don't count it against him. Don't count it against him, and basically receive my spirit up to you. And so Paul's there, and they are laying the coats at, at his feet, and so he seems to be somewhat in charge of that. And so then he goes up to, up to Antioch, and he's going up there to persecute Christians. He gets authority by the religious leaders to go up to Antioch, up in Syria. you got Israel down here. Syria is right above there. He goes up to what's the next biggest church after Jerusalem. And he goes up there to persecute the Christians, to find them, to throw them in prison. And so they show Stephen's wife, and she's struggling. 
Like, why did my husband have to die? And the kids are there. And I'm like, wow, this is starting to become really personal and real now. Because does she really believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Because if she does, then she knows that this world doesn't matter all that much. This world is so short, and eternity is going to be forever. And Jesus wins at the end. And so, but that's as much as you're going to be tried. Do I really believe this unto death? Watching my husband die and possibly watching my children die. And, and the Apostle Paul's goal at that time is to get people to say Jesus isn't king. Jesus isn't king. I'll tell you an, an interesting story. I was down at, um, with, with Stanton Healthcare, the pro-life stuff, and we're, we're in a vineyard church. And the guy that gets up is, is a pastor that's very Calvinist. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is an interesting place to be. And I thought, huh, Lord, let's see what happens here. And so, you know, a lot of times in more of the Reformed place, they don't believe in a lot of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and all this stuff. And so this pastor gets up. The first thing out of his mouth is, I'm, I'm starch Calvinist. This is what I believe. Please forgive me if you don't believe the right way. Um, like, oh boy, this is starting off great. In the vineyard church, which is super Holy Spirit, right? Like, to the gifts of the Spirit. And um, so I'm like, huh, interesting. But he tells this story. He goes to China. And he's been kicked out of many, many countries. They, they've got him banned. He, he, he cannot travel there. His passport says, do not let this person in, right? And not because he's a bozo or, or messes around, because he says Jesus is king. And so he goes to China during the Olympics, not this last time, but the time before. And he says, you know, how do we, what do we do for the Lord? And so years ago, when, when communism first came to China, there was a Catholic. So now we go, I mean, this is all over the place, right? We got a, we got a Catholic bishop that stood up in China and the emperor of China said, you will say Jesus is not king, that I am king, that I am Lord. And he says, no way. There is no way Jesus is king. And so this pastor goes over there and he puts up a sign that says, Jesus is king, right? Right in Tiananmen Square, which is where this whole, this whole incident happened, and, and put a banner. It says, Jesus is king. And their goal was to get it to be the, the um, most like trended Olympics ever. And because of this sign, it becomes that, right? Because Jesus is king. Now everybody wants to know what's going on. And, and so... The Lord has his ways. So he uses the same guy in the pro-life movement to, to recently, we, we had the, the, the Supreme Court make a decision on Roe versus Wade, right? And for years, we've been praying and praying. So this same reformed pastor who says he starts Calvinist, that's how he starts, says the Holy Spirit put him in his heart to go down to Washington, D.C. on a Friday. Nobody goes there. Everybody's leaving town. And put this case up to go before the Supreme Court. And he's saying, Lord, it, this is never going to work. This is not how this works. Nobody does this on Friday. And the Lord just told them, the Holy Spirit tells them, you got to go. You got to go do it. So he travels down there, listening to the Holy Spirit, the guy that I'm like, you don't even believe in the gifts of the Holy Like, what is going on here? This is a crazy story. And he goes down there and he puts the case before the Supreme Court, which is the case that then got heard. It got accepted on a Friday. They called them right back and said, they've decided to accept this case. And so we've been praying and praying for a case to go before the Supreme Court that could possibly overturn Roe versus Wade. And so here's this guy, this reform guy, and the Holy Spirit working through him because Jesus is king. Because Jesus is king. And so it's just awesome. All right. So the Apostle Paul, he's going out and he's trying to get people to say Jesus is not king to the point of death or throwing them into prison. He's a super religious guy. 
Like he's anything but what the apostles are. They're fishermen. They're average guys, a tax collector. There was a zealot guy in there a little bit, but he was more, you know, he's going to fight with power. Um, and so why Paul? Like, why does he choose this guy? It's, the, it's not who I would choose, right? But it's who the Lord chose because he knew I'll take this super religious guy and I'll send him out with the grace. And if you read through the letters of Paul to the churches, it's all about grace. Jesus comes, knocks him on the ground, blinds him and says, why are you persecuting me? What's your problem with me? I am the king. He says, okay. And then he tells him, I'm going to go. You're going to go down the street to the certain street where this guy is at. He's going to lay his hands on you. You're going to be able to see again. But then I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer for me. Now that you've been out making everybody else suffer, you're going to suffer for me and for the kingdom. And so he goes, he goes down there. And then the Lord spends three years with him out in the desert. We don't know exactly where. Somewhere out in the desert, Jesus spends three years discipling Paul and training him up for this mission to go to the Gentiles. So how does the church get out in Thessalonica? Who's he writing to? Well, to, to the Thessalonians. Where is that at? That's out in Greece today. So it's 1,500 miles by land from Jerusalem out to Greece, which was Macedonia at the time. Today, it's currently the second largest city within Greece. And so the United States is 3,000 miles, so halfway across, across the United States is how far Paul's gone to share Jesus, that, that Jesus is king. But what the Lord's done to speak to me about it is the Apostle Paul is going out there, but he, he's there in what's known as Turkey today, Asia Minor then, and he wants to go up to the top of Turkey to continue to spread the gospel. And I don't know exactly why. Maybe it was nicer up there. Maybe he liked the scenery up there. Maybe the people he thought would be nicer up there. That's what we do as human beings. So even as I pray with my family, it's like, Lord, send me to the nice place, right? Where all the people are, where, you know, we can really be used, Lord. And he very rarely works that way. So he tells Paul, nope, you're not going up there. You're going to go over to Macedonia. Okay, Lord. So he gets over to Macedonia, and he comes to the city called Philippi. And so that's why all these letters are written to these places, right? These are cities where he went with the message of King Jesus. And he gets to Philippi, and there's this sign that's out there that basically says, no religion allowed. We want no religion. We are anti-religion here. Our only religion, religion is the government. Caesar's Lord, Caesar's King. He's in charge. Religion stays out of this city. So what's Paul do? Okay. He goes down by the river, and here's a few ladies holding a prayer meeting. There's not a synagogue there. There's not at least 10 Jewish men. There's no meeting place even for the Jewish religion. And so he meets these ladies down there praying. What does he do? Starts telling them about King Jesus. Who, who are you praying to? What are you praying about? Let me, let me tell you who you're praying to and what you're praying about. It's about this king, and it's about this kingdom. And this rich lady named Lydia comes to faith in Jesus. So how does that play an important thing? Well, she ends up funding most of the missionary journeys for Paul. Because of the money that she's made, he's now able to go in full time and able to serve the Lord at many of the places he was at without taking money from anybody. He's like, I don't want to take money for the gospel. I want to be able to share King Jesus free of charge so that nobody can say I'm about money. And so he comes in there. The first thing he finds once he gets into the city is a demon-possessed girl. And Paul drives out the demon but the problem is they're very steeped in this worship of false gods. Even though there's no religion allowed, it really meant no Jewish religion allowed. And so they still have all their false gods and all their false idols. Well, he ends up getting thrown in prison. And this is the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel is that he starts telling people. He starts telling the jailer about King Jesus and the kingdom. 
Jesus is coming back. He's going to establish his kingdom. You need to be part of it. Do you want to be part of it? Let me tell you how. He invites people into the kingdom. It's not up to him whether they come or not. He just is out there to invite people into the kingdom, to tell them about the king. And so this miracle happens. The angel comes and all the doors are open suddenly. And nobody leaves. Nobody leaves. Like normally if there's a jailbreak, everybody's going to go. Because they can't catch everybody. They're only going to be able to catch a couple. Nobody leaves. Why? Because they're mesmerized by who is this Jesus? Who is this king? What is, the, what is this guy talking about? Like, I want to know more. So none of them leave. And he tells the jailer, don't, don't kill yourself. And he basically saves the jailer's life, Jesus does. And he tells him about the kingdom. Well, then he comes to Jesus. And as we read through Philippians, our thing of what we learn about Jesus, what I, what I saw is joy. How does this city go from not wanting anything to do with religion, nothing to do with this king or this kingdom, to be in the church of joy? They're overwhelmingly joyful. Um, and which they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. So eventually Paul gets kicked out of there. He comes down to Thessalonica, and he's going to spend three weeks there. So what is the message? If he's got three weeks, he's not going to be there long, and he doesn't know how long he's going to be there. So this shows me where he starts. He starts with the message it's always been. There's this kingdom of God. It's coming. It's going to last forever. All this stuff around you is all fading away. It's all going to go. The camper that you spent all this time and this house that you spent all this time and all these things you spend, I do too. I waste time painting my house and painting this and painting that. And I, I like it to look good. But I kind of feel guilty a little bit when I'm done. I'm like, what a waste. This is just going to burn up. Like, what did I do for the Lord today? What did I do for the kingdom today? I didn't do anything. I, I sat there and focused on myself so I can look out my window to make sure the outside patio looks good. And, and so he goes in. And um, he's going to tell them about Jesus there in Thessalonica. But he tells them Jesus is coming back. He's going to establish the kingdom. That's his message from the very beginning, from when he first comes there. It's not something that's really hard to understand. And I don't want to get into the end time stuff. And I want to stay all the way away from that because it's so hard to understand. Paul at this church starts there. He starts there. Because that is what's been the message all along. All right. So let's start in Acts 17. Verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollyanna, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. A synagogue is just a meeting place. If there was 10 Jewish men, they built a synagogue, and that's where they met to learn about God. The, The teachers would come through, the rabbis, they would teach people about God, and they met at the synagogue. So it says the synagogue of the Jews. Well, who are the Jews? Again, I read through my Bible all this time. Unless I really read the Old Testament, I don't know who the Jews are. I was somewhat anti-Semitic coming to a Christian church because all I heard about was Jesus and the Jews killed Jesus. So that is the devil and he drives anti-Semitism, hatred for the Jewish people. The devil loves to do it because they put Jesus to death. I had no idea who the Jewish people are, where they came from, why they're important, why they think that they should have the land of Israel. I don't... None of it, because I only was in the New Testament. I had only studied through, through the New Testament. I only read the New Testament. The Old Testament made zero sense. Um, but now, as I read back through the Old Testament, whoa, Jesus is everywhere in this thing. It's the same message from beginning to end, the kingdom of God, with the same king. And so, the Jews are God's chosen and blessed people. God's chosen and blessed people. As a nation, they are descendants of Abraham, this man named Abraham, father of many nations. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, 
What does God tell a man named Abram? So God chooses this guy out of all the people in the world named Abram. Why? doesn't tell us why. I think that's the point. Was he good? Probably not. Probably not any different than me and you. Was he super rich? Was he super powerful? Was he anything special? Doesn't seem to be. Doesn't say anything about that. Doesn't say I chose him because he's great. God made a choice. He chose to choose Abraham and chose to call Abraham for a purpose that God had. And so they are a chosen and blessed people. We see when God chooses Abraham, this starts as a relationship. Abram has a personal relationship with God Almighty. They're on speaking terms. They have a relationship. There's no law. There's no religious system. It's just God and Abram. A promise from God and Abram, or to to Abram. And he tells them that you are to leave your homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans, which many believe is, includes the land of Babylon. So if you read through the Bible, you'll start to see the land of Babylon. It's not a good thing. It's usually this, this world system that's under Satan. Satan seems to come from there and control that. And so he says, come out of Babylon and go to a land I will show you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land, a promised land. Then I'm going to make you a large family. Matter of fact, your family is going to be so large, it's going to turn into a nation. But I'm not going to stop there, Abram. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Matter of fact, I'm going to give you the whole world. The whole world will be blessed through you. And he tells Abram, I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. But all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So God clearly chose this man. He clearly chose these people for a reason. Why? Everything in this book and everything of God goes back to King Jesus and the kingdom. Everything. Why? For King Jesus and the kingdom. That's why he chose him. Not because Abraham's anybody. He's not important. Not important at all. It's just that's who God chose to use. Just like he chooses to use me and you if we'll let him. Right? Abraham chose God as well. So God, not, no doubt, chose Abraham, but Abraham chose God. God knew the end of Abraham's story, and so he chose him. And so, how was Abraham made right with God? Because he's a sinner. How does he have this relationship with this holy God that doesn't sin? And it says that Abraham believed God, and God accounted him as righteous. He took his sin away and said, you're righteous because you believe me. Because you believe. He believed in what? He believed in the kingdom, and he believed in the king. He believed in the kingdom, and he believed in the king. And so, in in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19... What does God say is the purpose of the law? Because see, here's what we do. God started out with this relationship with Abraham, but we need rules. We're, we're a people that like to give us checkboxes. I'm this way. I was this way for years. I had a, I'm not kidding. I, I tracked my time down to the minute. I checked off my box. I shared with my neighbor today. I handed out Gospels of John today. I did worship today. I read my part in the Bible today. And I, I did this for a long time until one night the Lord said, what are you doing? When you begun in the spirit. How foolish can you be? Now you're trying to be made perfect in the flesh? Right? I was reading through my Bible and I'm like, man, that is what I'm doing. I'm seriously doing the same thing that these religious people were doing. They were at the temple more than all of us. They were there every single day. The priests served God every day. They did sacrifices every day. They sang worship songs every day. They read their Bible and the prophecies every day. It puts us to shame. Puts us to shame. But they had zero relationship with God. He left that temple long before that. Matter of fact, the 
The temple that King Herod built never even says he was there. It never even says he came back there. And so here they are. They're going through this religious system with no relationship with God. So what do we do? We take the rules that God gives us because he knows. He knows how. We, I mean, he created us. We need some rules. We need some, some check boxes to check. It's just how we are as people. So not all of that is bad until it becomes I have to do it. I've always said we get to do it. I get to serve God. I don't, I don't have to do it. I get to do it. I'm compelled to do it. I'm compelled to love people. I'm compelled to teach his word. I cannot do anything else, really. And so here, so what is the law there for then? Why did God give us the law? Well, he knew that we could never keep it. So he gave it to the Jewish people saying, good luck. Here, I'll give you all the blessings in the world. Just go ahead and follow all these rules. Then what does man do? They come along and make a whole bunch more rules that aren't even in the Bible. Right? We just make up stuff. I mean, all the churches, even Calvary Chapel, we're guilty of this. We make things be distinctives that maybe aren't quite that important. And so we can all do this. And it, the purpose of the law was to show that we can never keep it, that we're all sinners. We're all going to fall short of what we're, we're required to do. To do what? To point us to the kingdom and to the king. To point us to the kingdom and to the king. In Romans chapter 4, verse 9 through 18... Who does God say are the real children of Abraham? Who belonged to Abraham? This is way before the law, way before Moses. It says all who believe. So all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you because he's the father of all who believe in the kingdom and in King Jesus. So in a spiritual kind of way, if you want to say, we are all kind of Jewish people, right? We're all a chosen people in that way. Now, we're not descendants of Abraham, if you're a Gentile, right? You can't physically claim that. We don't know what tribe we're from. Matter of fact, nobody does. All right. And so there they are at the synagogue of these Jewish people. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths in a row reasoned with them from the scriptures. So again, I read through this Sabbath, whatever. I don't know what that word is. And so I just keep reading, right? I'm, I want to get to the promises. There's one thing I, I love the promises of God, I don't always love the warnings. I don't always love the warnings. So God happened to bring me to a church where the pastor focused more on the warnings than he did the promises. But it's not a shock. I needed that. I need, because I skip over the warnings. Oh, yeah, that's for somebody else. That's for those non-born again people. I don't, I don't need to abide by that. That's not that important. Matter of fact, the highest, warm, the highest form of worship is obedience. More than singing a song, more than coming to church, more than praying, obeying God is the highest form of worship. There's no way else to say, I love you more than that, than to obey. And I know it for my kids. When my kids obey me, that's when I know that they really care about me and they really love me. Um, when they're out being a fool, I'm like, huh, I don't know that you really even think about me. And I could be the same way with God. How much do I think about the Heavenly Father? Sometimes not all that much until something bad comes or I need to be reminded and the Lord smacks me around a little bit and says, yeah, remember, I'm here and you shouldn't be doing that. You're right, Lord, please forgive me. And so what does the Sabbath mean, right? And then what does the Sabbath mean for believers? Because it was given to the Jewish people and I'm not a descendant of Abraham down, down from a physical birth, right? And so what does Sabbath mean? Well, we turn to the book of Hebrews and it says exactly what it means. It says, God rested on the seventh day from all of his work. He rested for all, from all of his work. And it says in there that we, that rest of God, resting from all of his work, we can call it, it is finished. God says, I'm finished working. After six days, I rest on the seventh. 
That's what we have in our Sabbath as believers. We rest that the work is finished. We're going to do nothing to come to God. It's God did his work in six days. He rested. We just rest in that rest. We rest in Jesus. He is our Sabbath. He's Lord over the Sabbath. And so that rest, that Sabbath as a believer for me is that I just remember I can rest in God no matter what came this week and no matter what I did and no matter how frustrated I got with the kids and maybe I yelled at the kids and now I got to go and ask them to forgive me, right? Because no matter what, I shouldn't do that. Um, No matter how they're acting, God doesn't scream down at me. And so we can just rest. We can rest in the finished work of Jesus. There's nothing religious that I, I have to do. All right. And then it says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. And then it goes on in verse 3 to say, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ, that is the victorious king, had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He's the victorious king of the kingdom. He is the Christ. Now to a Jewish person, what are you talking about? We're talking about the victorious king. They're waiting for the Messiah. Matter of fact, We'll see. If you go to Israel today and you interview people over there, they're waiting for a world political leader. That's what the Bible says is going to happen, and you can see it in the hearts of the people. It's a miracle. 2,000 years, Jewish people did not live in Israel. Today, for the first time, more Jews live in Israel than they live in the rest of the world. You know where most of them live that don't live there? Here in this country. So, I don't know. God's got to do something to get them back there, because he says, you guys are going back to your land, whether you like it or not. I'm going to put it in your hearts to go back to that land. So today, more Jews live there, but there's still a good amount here in America. So I don't know what that means. I just know that they got to get back over there. And so if you talk to them, even the non-religious ones, they know a Jewish leader or someone that's going to lead Israel and allow Israel to be back in a place of prominence in the world stage is coming. They're ready for him. They're ready for this false Christ. Jesus said, you don't believe in me, but you're going to believe in him. And so how would Paul reason to these guys that says, Jesus can't be this. He's not a political leader. He didn't king nothing. He, He died on a cross. Are you kidding me? Like he's dead. How can he be the Christ? He's not. And so Paul turns the most likely, doesn't say, to Isaiah 53, which talks about a lot about crucifixion, somebody hanging and dying on a cross, Hundreds of years before crucifixion even existed. There was no crucifixion. There was no Roman Empire. There was nothing like that. How could that be? Like it's beyond anything that we can understand. Nobody could predict that. So how does Isaiah predict that hundreds of years beforehand? So what do the liberal theologians say? Well, of course they did because we don't have an old copy of the Old Testament. All the Old Testament copies come after the New Testament. So they made that stuff up. Easy. Isaiah was written clearly, because there's no other way, after Jesus. Until we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then it says, huh, those come before Jesus. So now what? And it's amazing because the Dead Sea Scrolls have most of Isaiah in there. Out of any book, how is it that that's found? Am I supposed to believe that's a coincidence? But it debunks all that stuff. We We turn to Psalms 22, talking again about Jesus and his death. Turn to Psalm 16, that that God will not leave his body in the grave, but he will raise him from the dead. And so it's been there all along, this king and this this kingdom. All right, and then we'll go two more verses, and then we'll stop. Told you, I don't know how far we'll make it. All right. And some, in verse 4, of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks 
And not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious. That's the last commandment, do not covet. It's the one that got Martin Luther that created a whole reformation, right? Um, He couldn't do this. He beat himself because he couldn't get rid of envy. He couldn't get rid of this desire to have what other people had. He even went up in the monastery, hit up in the heels and all that stuff. He couldn't, he couldn't do it. He beat himself until he came that the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith, which is Romans. Um, just shall live by faith. And so they became envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Verse six. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too now. They've come here. They've turned the whole world upside down, or at least the world that they knew at the time. Turned the whole world upside down. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Another king, Jesus. During the Roman Empire, which we can see out of the book of Daniel, the rise of all these empires, this stuff is fascinating. If this stuff, if you don't read your Bible and your mind isn't blown and know that there's a real God, you need to get into the scriptures and read them. This stuff in Daniel is beyond absolutely amazing. I just, I get excited about it. I'm like, how can this be? How does he know all these kingdoms and how they're going to rise and how they're going to fall? He tells us about a new Roman Empire coming in the last days. It's just fascinating, beyond fascinating stuff. And so... We have this kingdom of the Roman Empire who now has crucifixion. Had to be that way because that's what the Bible said was going to happen to Jesus. So they've, they've got this crucifixion. But in the Roman Empire, you were fine. You could have your religious freedom. As long as Caesar was Lord and King. As long as Caesar remained Lord and King. He was the supreme authority. He was the one in charge. There was no one greater than Caesar. And so when Apostle Paul comes through these different areas that are ruled by the Roman Empire, and he starts saying Jesus is king, just like the guy in China not too many years ago, you're going to die. Like, that is what's going to happen. You have to count the cost and say, I'm willing to give my life because I really believe this. I really believe that Jesus is king. I really believe he's coming back, and I really believe in an everlasting kingdom. It's what gets me through my day. And Paul will go on in in Thessalonians to say, encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other with these words because living for Jesus is getting harder and harder. Don't think it's getting easier in this country. Trump is not coming back to save everything. So maybe I'm a false prophet. We'll, we'll see. But Trump's not coming back to save any, anything. Right? And we can see. I don't even know how this guy that's currently there got there. I just blow. Like, I just, I'm, like if I didn't see that with my own eyes, I would. Like what is going on in this world? But, but when I read this, I'm like, well, that's. What he says is going to happen. There has to be somebody in the U.S. that's going to rise up and turn this thing over to Antichrist that is going to be, again, Lord and King instead of Jesus. So pretty much anywhere you go, even over in France today, go over to France and say, this is about God's kingdom and it's about King Jesus. See how long you're able to say that message. You won't say that on the streets over in France. You won't make it but a few minutes. And they will shut you down and they will put you right in prison. In, in the European nations, again, Where does the false Jesus, anything but Jesus, come from? Most likely from over there somewhere. All right, let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kingdom. 
Lord, um, each one of us has to be born in. Born into your kingdom. There is no other way. None of us are good enough. None of us are ever going to be good enough. There's no amount of Bible study. There's no amount of prayer. There's no amount of fellowship. There's no amount of any of those things that's going to make up for being born again. You didn't choose Abraham because he was great. You didn't choose us because we're great. Matter of fact, it says you chose many that were not great. It was the opposite of that. So that you would show the world who you are, that you would get the glory. And so I pray, Jesus, as we leave here tonight, that we go out with your word through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we are witness for you, that we spread the message of the kingdom. That is why we're here. We're here to spread the message of the kingdom and that Jesus is king. And so, Lord, but let us do it in love. Let us do it in love. Even as we were going to read tonight, we are called to live quiet and gentle lives, minding our own business, working hard with our hands, not trying to cause a scene, not drawing attention to ourselves, but simply pointing people to Jesus. When they see us over there and we're working hard and we're honoring the company when we don't have to, when everybody else is lying or cheating on their time card or cheating on this and that, Lord, we don't have to. We don't have to. We get to be different. And when they look at that and they say, what is wrong with you? Why, why are you so different? Let me tell you. As my nephew asked me, who is this Lord? You talk a lot about this Lord. Who is this Lord of yours? Oh, let me tell you. Let me tell you about the kingdom. Let me tell you about... King Jesus, let me tell you about how to get into this kingdom. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And then I get to tell them who Jesus really is. And so, Lord, thank you that you use broken sinners like us. Thank you that you have called us. Thank you that you've chosen us. Thank you, Lord, that we can choose you. You're so awesome, Lord. We can never thank you enough. Even as we as a family have been singing this worship song, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you took that wrath for us that we can have salvation. You took our punishment. You poured out God's anger upon you, Jesus, so that we don't have to. We don't have to to go and experience that, Lord. We just have salvation in you. It comes from no other place. You have the words of eternal life, Lord. So, Lord, do a work. You know each one of us. Use us this week for your glory and for the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.